Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week, Joe Batan, helped bring Latin soul music into the mainstream and was a leading figure in Boogaloo. But he only did all that because his first career plan didn't work out. Well, you got to understand, growing up in El Barrio at that time, there were only two ways to escape that your environment. You either became an, an athlete, high-paying athlete, so you played ball, baseball, and everything you could get your hands on, cans, sticks, rocks, or else you became an entertainer. No one thought about pursuing the education and going on to higher learning at that time because we couldn't afford it. You know, so I failed as a baseball player because I didn't grow anymore. My first idol was Jackie Robinson. And um, the story goes on. <laughs> the same thing's true of NPR hosts, by the way. The second I get that call from the San Francisco Giants, I'm out of here. It's Bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, I'll talk to Joe Batan. Back in the 60s, as Boogaloo music got big, there was a kind of backlash from other parts of the Latin music scene. Batan says there was a simple reason for that. That meant that they couldn't play it. (laughs) (laughs) Simple as that, and I put me on record. Look, if they could have done it, they would have joined in the parade. Joe and I will talk about breaking into the music industry, why he dropped out of it for a while, and how he came back with a performance on one of the very first rap songs in 1979. Then later, I'll sit down with Ali Wong. Ali's a stand-up comedian. She writes for Fresh Off the Boat, and she taped her new stand-up special while she was seven and a half months pregnant. In other words, she works incredibly hard. And sometimes she wonders if there wasn't another path she could have taken. There are women, I, I believe, out there who are just chilling. And I'm like, what am I doing? I made all the wrong decisions. Ali Wong talks about being the breadwinner in her family, gigging her way through maternity, and trying to talk about difficult, personal stuff on stage. And I'll tell you about an artist with one of the sweetest voices and some of the most beautiful melodies in music right now. He's a rapper, by the way. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Joe Batan is the living embodiment of the melting pot. His dad was Filipino. His mom was African-American. Growing up in Spanish Harlem, he learned to speak Spanish from his Puerto Rican friends and neighbors. When he became a musician, he fused the soul and doo-wop that he grew up loving with the Latin music that was everywhere in his neighborhood, and he helped create Boogaloo. The bands were young, loose, and soulful, and Batan and his band were no different. Here's a bit of his first hit, a reworking of the Impressions Sweet Soul classic, Gypsy Woman. As you can hear, it sounds pretty much nothing like the original. Very 
Natan is featured in a new documentary called We Like It Like That that traces the history of Boogaloo. Here are some of the genre's greats trying to describe what it is. Matan will be the last voice that we hear. It really was like a New York experience because it, it had that whole melting pot aspect to it. It's not that music from Havana, Cuba that was pure. It ain't pure no more. We here. In the test tube, you put a little bit of Cuban guajira, some montuno, cha-cha-cha, blues chords, some R&B vocal stylings, start shaking it up, throw it out, and what do you get? Latin boogaloo and Latin song. The younger generation was looking for something under their bag. They wasn't going to go backwards. They, they liked what they were hearing in the streets, and the boogaloo was there. We played the way we thought we had to play from the way we grew up. A lot of ours were self-taught musicians. We were just like in a rush. We wanted to get things out there. We wanted to create excitement. Joe Batan, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> So tell me how you got the name Joe Batan, because that is not your <laughs> birth name, or it's partly your birth name. Well, back in 1942, during the Second World War, uh, as you know, my father's Filipino, uh, he was questioned why he wanted to name me Batan, and he had to find it in the Oriental Dictionary at the time, which meant the word youth. Youth conquers all. So they gave him permission. Actually, there's a funny, whimsical story behind that, because if I was a girl, they were going to name me Corregidor. <laughs> Did you think of yourself as uh, Pinoy or African-American? Like, how did your parents' ethnic background play into who you thought you were? You know, that's a strange question because I didn't grow up like other youngsters. We didn't have um, that type of bias back then. You know, we were just all thrown into a melting pot, and we just uh, appreciated our neighbor. You know, of course, we joked about our heritage— and it didn't mean anything back then. Now somebody would try to punch you in the nose if you said something derogatory. But back then, I hang out with, with Japanese guys. Most of the neighborhoods were of Latin descent. And uh, they took it for granted that I was uh, Puerto Rican. You know, not that I said I was, but, you know, I was a minority. You have to understand, growing up in East Harlem at that time, Joe Batan was in a minority. So I had to prove myself to my peers that I existed and that I was um, a piece of the furniture, you know, and that's how I existed. <laughs> you, as a teenager, um, were, uh, as I understand it, somewhat of a, I guess at the time it might have been called a JD, a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> yeah, Boogaloo's bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did that mean? What, what, did, what did that mean in, uh, so you, you were born in, in 42, right, 43? So right. what did that mean in 1959? Right. Well, you got to understand, growing up in El Barrio at that time, there were only two ways to escape that your environment. You either became an, an athlete, high-paying athlete, so you played ball, baseball, and everything you could get your hands on, cans, sticks, rocks, or else you became an entertainer. No one thought about uh, pursuing the education and going on to higher learning at that time because we couldn't afford it. You know, so I failed as a baseball player because I didn't grow anymore. My first idol was Jackie Robinson because I liked all the ideals and the things that he had to fight for, and I guess that was embedded in me from him and from my mother, from Mother Wit. And um, the story goes on. <laughs> what trouble did you get into as a kid? Well, you name it. I mean, I did it. I was involved with gangs, fighting. Um, I was in um, joyriding. 
in a stolen automobile. I, I did everything. And, of course, uh, it caught up to me. I was not only arrested once, I was arrested three times. And that was because I was um, kicked out of school because I had this um, notion that I could do anything I wanted to do. Of course, I was wrong. I was foolish at that time. And um, it was a learning experience. You know, that's all I can benefit from that. Were you already playing music when you were a kid and a teenager? I always listened to music. I was the guy that went to the neighborhood uh, store and bought the latest hit parade books that came out on Saturday morning. And, of course, I read the passages, the lyrics, and I imitated all these artists from Patti Page to Frank Sinatra to Nat King Cole while the music was playing on the radio. So that was my uh, experience uh, with music. I had no instrument. We couldn't afford a piano. Um, I wasn't a musician, but I had a very trained ear. And that's how most of the kids at that time that grew up in the barrio had to do. You had to make men's, and you had to reinvent yourself constantly to keep up with the times. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Latin soul and boogaloo legend, Joe Batan. There's a scene in We Like It Like That um, where one of the artists takes the camera to, gosh, I don't know, it looks like maybe it's the entranceway of a subway station or the uh, the basement of a you know big apartment building or something like that where there's three or four tile walls that, that are facing right. each other in interesting ways and just gets deep into the reverb there. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was the projects. <laughs> yeah, were you were you singing in singing groups as a kid? Oh, that's how I started. Well, actually, I started as a soloist, you know, just imitating music. But, of course, after a while, when we developed this um, knowledge of harmony, then we started to seek out other friends of ours, and, and we followed in the path of a lot of those um, traditional groups, the Heartbeats, the Oreos, you know, the flamingos. I mean, you name it, Frankie Lyman. And then everybody wanted to sing in a group. And I was no different. When did you get really serious about making music? Well, when I thought that um, a few of the neighborhood guys had become successful. From my neighborhood, a lot of people were very successful. Johnny Colon, Joe Cuba, Ocheo Feliciano, Tito Puente, all these guys. And then... Um, Johnny Colon had made a song called Boogaloo Blues, which was done in English, and it was right down my alley. So I said, well, gee, I can do this, and I went to school with him. And, of course, as a result of, of attending one of his rehearsals, which he didn't really want me to be, I got very upset, and I vowed that one day I would show him and the rest of the world that I could um, excel in something that I knew nothing about never knowing that it would only take me six months to Cinderella story, that after that incident, I was making records. When you say that you attended one of his rehearsals and he didn't really want you to be, maybe you could expand on what that means. <laughs> okay, this is what it was. Uh, and in different terms, in different language, you know, I really wanted to punch him in the nose, you know, <laughs> because uh, here's a guy that sang with me when we were kids, and all of a sudden he was shunning me. You know, like maybe I was a neighborhood tough guy or I was there to steal something that uh, he was uh, working on. That was not the fact. I love music, and my friend Tito Ramos, who was in his band, invited me there. And that's the only reason why I went, because this was something new. I had grown up in doo-wop, rock and roll, and rhythm and blues, and all of a sudden they were telling me, Joe, we're not doing that anymore. I said, what are you doing? He said, we're doing Latin music. I said, wow, can I see? He said, yeah, come to the rehearsal tonight. 
never imagining that Johnny Colon didn't really want me there. You know, so that was his prayer. And um, I left, and of course I was very angry. And um, I was destined to do something about that. And instead of using my hands, I used my head for the first time. How old were you then? Oh, boy, when I came home, I must have been 19 to 20. When you came home from where? West Kaksaki Reformatory. So how long were you in there, and how old were you then? Well, I was 16 when the judge said, um, my, my attorney was telling him, you know, Joe, we, we don't understand that, Your Honor. This youngster dresses nice. He always has money in his pocket. He's trying to go back to school, and he's doing very well. The judge said, stop right there. He's a bum. I'm going to send him away. Maybe he'll learn something. And he was right. Because when I went to the reformatory and he said an indefinite period of five years, I said, oh, my God, I can't be away from my family for that long. But it was an indefinite period sentence. So that meant that it was up to me when I would come home. It took me two and a half years to get back home. But in that span of time, I graduated from high school. I was the first uh, youngster to attain equivalency diploma while I was in the reformatory. I went on to get regents diplomas. My old track coach at Benjamin Franklin had gotten me a scholarship to Howard University because I was a track man. And I learned music under the tutelage of Mark Francis. So I pretended while I was away, I said, gee, I'm not going to waste my life. I'm going to pretend I'm away at school and I'm going to read everything I can get my hands on. And that's exactly what I did. So being self-taught as a musician and being self-educated after my um, pre-stand in high school is what I did. Was there a piano there? I mean, did you just spend time sitting and playing? Not there. Uh, my teacher was very strict. I played trumpet, actually. Not very good. But I always had the desire to play piano. And when I came home, uh, I dabbled at it, not knowing what I was doing. And by trial and error, I discovered a triad, which was a C major scale. And once I was able to do that progression um, from C to D minor to E minor and back to D minor, I started writing songs. And then my vision was to keep playing and learning. I thought it would take me 10 years. But actually, it happened so soon, six months we were making records. And then, of course, as the process went along, I kept learning day by day. And to this day, I still learn. Let's take a listen to another song from my guest, Joe Batan, and his first LP from 1967, Gypsy Woman. Uh, this song's called Ordinary Guy. What's the difference between what Latin music meant uh, to you and your young friends from the neighborhood who were 
often making boogaloo, and the Latin music of the older band leaders who were, you know, who were at the time kind of running the show. Okay. Good question. Actually, you have to understand, I was like a foreign entity coming into uh, an art form that was already enclosed. And this has happened out throughout history. The purists wanted to keep the clave, which is the clave of the beat, uh, traditional. So when I came, I introduced, uh, with the help of other artists, this cha-cha beat that songs were done in Spanish but sung in English. What this did was open up to the public a large mass of population that there was something else where traditionally they wouldn't listen to a Latin song because it was done in Spanish and they didn't understand what they were saying. Now they could hear Latin music done in English. So this opened up a lot of doors and brought a lot of new fans uh, to the history of Latin music. Of course, they called it boogaloo, they called it Latin soul, they called it acid rock. went by a lot of different genres, but actually people don't know the history. Smokey Robinson was doing this a long time ago. He didn't know what he was doing. He was actually doing cha-chas with Mary Wells and the songs that he wrote. Uh, and uh, he never gave it a name. But when I heard his style, I knew that it fit in with the cha-cha. So I could do the same thing and add in the traditional Latin instruments and give the same effect, which turned out to be boogaloo. You mentioned the clave, which is the, the rhythmic backbone of a lot of uh, especially Caribbean Latin music. Right. In the movie, We Like It Like That, we get to hear from a few people who are, for lack of a better term, they have a variety of uh, ranges of attitudes about it, but for lack of a better term, clave snobs. Who are ta- who t- one of the things they talk about is, you know, these boogaloo bands, they were too loose, they didn't keep the clave, they weren't in clave. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. What did that mean? That meant that they couldn't play it. <laughs> Simple as that, and I put me on record. Look, if they could have done it, they would have joined in the parade because there was a lot of money, a lot of notoriety, a lot of popularity at that time. So who runs away from that? People that lie to themselves, that can't capture that music. You have to understand, for a person to feel Latin music, normally you come from a Latin background. Just like if you feel R&B, you're going to feel that backbeat of African-American sound. But when you can put the two together, it's exceptional because you have to have a feeling for both rhythms and it has to be authentic. That's just like uh, playing reggae. If you play reggae in England, people from Jamaica don't really uh, accept it because it's not traditional with them. So what has happened to Latin music is for so long they tried to keep it enclosed. They tried to keep out anything that they thought that was inferior when actually they should have welcomed anybody else attempting to do anything to broaden the scope of this music, which is happening now today. No longer can the purists stop the boogaloo or Latin soul from coming back, and it's already showed that around the world. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Latin soul legend Joe Batan. So, Joe, one of the things that we like it like that, the documentary about the history of Boogaloo that you're featured in, uh, tries to answer is what happened to Boogaloo. And it seems like it settles on a story that is uh, basically a combination of the natural life cycle of uh, young people's music genre, which is to say that um, 
you know, there were some Boogaloo hits and then people had already heard Boogaloo. But also that sometime around the late 1960s, there was a kind of classicist retrenchment, like the Latin music powers that be said, no, what we're going to do is serious salsa music. Did you feel like part of what happened was almost a blacklisting of this cross-genre musical ideal? No doubt. Um, it is several answers to your question. First of all, there was a conspiracy. There was an assassination of this music. And it started when I tried to organize uh, in a little room on 107th Street and Lexington Avenue. All the musicians got together and asked me, because I was one of the hottest artists in the market at that time. I was out selling everybody maybe four to one, and they all were wanted to organize to get work. And they asked me to head this meeting, and I did. And I explained to them, I said, you know, when you're in demand, that's probably the best time for you to demand uh, what you want. You want equal pay. You want health benefits. You want to be recognized. You want it to be treated with respect. You got to organize. You all got to get together. Of course, what transpired there at that meeting, and there were a lot of them that are not uh, around any longer, um, is that they walked out. Uh, and went back to the record companies and stated that Joe Batan was starting trouble. And that was their way to get in with, with uh, the record company, finally, at the time. And, uh, of course, when they heard about this, they were intent on putting Joe Batan in his place. So as a result, I was not signing a renewal of my contract, and I was upset because my residuals weren't being uh, distributed properly, I refused to record. I took a page out of uh, Colfax and Drysdale. Those were two great pitches for the Brooklyn Dodgers. I read in the newspaper where they stood out and wouldn't pitch for the Dodgers unless their contracts were negotiated. So I took the same stance. And, of course, they held out for maybe a year or two, and then finally uh, they came to part. But we parted. We couldn't get along. They weren't paying the artists what they should be getting. And um, I was intent on leaving and going someplace else, not knowing where I was going. But this is how that started, and that's what happened to the Boogaloo with me. But there was definitely an attempt to stop uh, the Boogaloo craze and get all of the traditional bands to work only. And that started with a Jose Cobello, who was a purist, and, and a couple of the, the um, executives at Fania. Was part of the purism that was going on about race? Was part of it about either uh, differences between light-skinned Latinos and Afro-Latinos or um, people who wanted to maintain a pure Latino identity, people who didn't want it to be mixed with African-American cultural That values. might have been more so with the audience and the people that bought records, not with the executives. You see, if you were making money for somebody, they couldn't care if you were yellow, brown, orange, red, or green. You were making money. You were let in the door, and you were welcome. That's the old capitalistic approach to anything, all right? Nobody cared. You could have been darker than uh, the darkest planet in the world. If you were making money, you were accepted. As soon as you weren't making money, you were let go. I'll finish my conversation with Joe Batan after a break. 
He'll tell me how he went from retired from the music industry to the man behind one of the first ever rap records, Rappo Clappo, in 1979. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from Starry Station, the touchscreen router for fast Wi-Fi. Starry Station was designed to give you a better way to game, stream, and surf throughout your home. You can see your entire network at a glance, get suggestions on how to fix problems, and finally know if you're getting the internet speed you pay for. It even has parental controls that let you block usage on specific devices during certain hours of the day. Learn more about Starry Station at starry.com slash bullseye. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Try out the NPR One app for your phone to get conversations you wouldn't hear anywhere else. This week, find Guy Raz's exclusive interview with TED curator Chris Anderson, where they discuss the TED phenomenon and the secrets to giving a great TED Talk. Find their conversations by searching TED Radio on the NPR One app, where you can also find stories from your local station and more great podcasts. NPR One is on your app store now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the Latin soul musician Joe Batan. He's featured in the film We Like It Like That, the story of Latin Boogaloo. It's available on VOD now. Maybe your biggest hit you had in your, I guess, late 30s, when I don't even know if you were exclusively a musician by this point in your career, but it it was one of the first rap records uh, in 1979 called Rapo Clapo. Right. (laughs) Um, I'm going to play some of it, but first I kind of wonder, I, I guess I just wonder, I mean, you're not a rapper, so... Where did this come from? The story goes, I saw this phenomenal thing happening at a community center that I worked on on 110th Street in East Harlem. And the kids came in there and they paid a dollar and there was about a thousand kids dancing on the floor and all you could hear is clapping of their hands and stomping of their feet. And the rhythm wasn't really um, really up-tempo, but it was a slow groove. And then they had two DJs on uh, the stage, spinning these records and scratching. And when I inquired, well, what is this? They had no name for it. And I said, gee, what an idea. You mean nobody has put this on records? And that's what I attempted. I I approached two of the kids and told them that, uh, you know, I'd like to put that on records and we'll do it like this and we'll write the song, et cetera, et cetera. I went and borrowed some money uh, from my neighbor rented RCA Studios. When I got there, did the music. The guys never showed up. So when I thought about it and the kids were there that were helping me out, I said, I could do this myself. I remember listening to Jocko and and uh, uh, Frankie Crocker, and they talked on the radio. I said, what could be so difficult about talking on the radio? He said, you just have to talk to a beat. So I attempted it, and I saw the kids were moving while I was talking, and boom, I had it. You know, and the next thing I knew, I was bringing it around to record companies, and I said, well, this is something new. You got to listen. They threw me out the studio. Get out of here with that garbage. We don't want to hear that. Finally, uh, after waiting so long, Sugar Hill Gang beat me to the punch and came out with the first record. And, of course, then everybody was looking for me. Joe, you got that song? Bring it. And I was the first one to play that in the garage. Let's take a listen to Rappo Clapo from Joe Batan. Okay.
You know, you tour and work as a musician now pretty much full time. Um, but there was a solid 20 years or so uh, that you didn't work as a musician. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, was it painful for you to give it up or did it feel like the thing to do to have a, just a different part of your life? You know, you got to a point you just accept it. You figure that's a way of life, not knowing what God had in store for me. So maybe I had to go through the trials and the lessons of life and what I had done wrong when I obtained the success. You see, maybe I didn't do anything for anybody. Maybe I didn't share uh, the talent that I had properly with people. So you had to come to pass, and, and, and the big boss gives you time to work it out. I did a stint in the reformatory, came back out. I was evicted from my apartment. I rose to the top without a piano again and again and again. There were periods of my time when I've had all kinds of struggles, but I attribute that to my mother. And she taught me about streetology, which is coming out in my book, How to Survive East Harlem and all the negativity that you can be surrounded with growing up and still survive. I'm still here. I'm 73. And you couldn't tell anybody that I'm 73 because I'm jumping up on the stage like a 22-year-old. And that comes from God. Um, it's that aggressiveness that keeps me going. You really have to watch how you live and, and count your blessings and not know what's important. There are priorities. And this thing about me having a new house and a new car, I thought that meant a lot. It doesn't mean a thing. That's chasing wind. And it's vain. Um, what's important is preparing your life and what you're going to do, you know, when the time comes. And I think that's a success. Grace, mercy, and peace. You know, you spent some of your teenage years in a gang, and you talked about the, the kind of stuff that you got up to in the, in the mid to late 60s, you know, fights over turf and uh, stealing cars and that kind of thing. By the time you were of you know, a full-time youth counselor in the, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm -hmm. Street life was was pretty rough. Yes. Um, you know, it was a turning point in my life because when I got that job, I found out that I couldn't make a living from the music because there wasn't that much work. I wasn't being played on the radio. And people only remember what you what you did lately. They don't care about what you did in the past if you're not current. You know, so I was no different. So I had to go out and get a job. And what could I do? My background didn't show that I had any skill. So when I saw this job open for a juvenile counselor, I said, gee, that could be me right down the alley. I probably could do that better than anybody, having been incarcerated and working with kids all my life. So they hired me, but they they were shocked that I came there looking for a job. He said, aren't you Joe Batan? I said, yeah. He said, well, what happened? I said, I need a job. I got to pay my rent. You know, so they hired me. And I must say, I attacked that uh, position like I did music. To this day, I'm so proud of the 25 years that I gave to kids. Uh, I've never had to raise my hand at anybody. I always use uh, what I had to say as a lesson. Spirit, health, and knowledge were my three ingredients. Spirit, you have to believe in something. Health, you got to take care of your body so you can do all the other three. And knowledge, it's a crime to let a day go by without learning something new. And I taught these kids that. I ran it like a dojo while uh, we we had the residence. And to this day, a lot of them try to get in touch with me or come to see me play. They're men now. <laughs> well, Joe, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to come be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. Just thank you so much. And give my regards to everybody out there in California. I'll be coming soon. <laughs> I'll, I'll let everybody know. Joe Bertan is uh, the le- one of the legendary voices of uh, Latin soul and boogaloo. He's also one of the featured voices in the new film, We Like It Like That, which traces the history of boogaloo. Okay. It's on VOD right now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When Ali Wong walks out on stage to start her first hour-long stand-up special, it's kind of amazing. In real life, Ali's pretty tiny, uh, and usually she feels a lot bigger on stage because she's so bold. But in her special, which is called Baby Cobra, she's literally bigger because she's seven and a half months pregnant. A lot of her material is about imagining and creating a grown-up life for herself, finding love, getting married. And here she is on stage, on camera, with a child inside her, in this tight dress, like, pow, it's great. Anyway, Allie was born and raised in San Francisco. Her dad was Chinese-American. Her mother's Vietnamese-American. Her husband's half Filipino, half Japanese. Allie has a degree in Asian-American studies that gets put to good use in her special baby cobra. Here she is talking about the benefits of having four distinct Asian-American ethnicities in action at home. I think that for marriage, it can be nice to be with somebody of your own race. The advantage is that you get to go home and be racist together. (laughs) You get to say whatever you like. You don't got to explain My husband, half Filipino, half Japanese. I'm half Chinese and half Vietnamese, and we spend 100% of our time on Korean people. It's amazing. It's what love is built on, you know? My last boyfriend was Cuban, and his family would on Mexican people all the time. And I was like, hold up. You guys aren't Mexican? (laughs) Allie Wong, it's great to have you on Bullseye. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. It's so surreal to listen to that clip. I haven't watched um, Baby Cobra since November, since I went to editing for it. Well, you've been busy. I've been been busy, yeah. (laughs) So I guess the first question is, um, like, what was the relationship between the plan to make this special, which is the biggest deal in your career? It's the first hour-long special. is the huge break for every stand-up. Yeah. And the fact that you were doing having this huge thing in your personal life, having your first child. You know, people had been talking to me about doing a special for a long time. And I was like, no, I, I want to wait. I want to wait. And you can wait forever because you can be like, it can be better. And, you know, working on jokes is endless. I kind of before the special I felt like all of these jokes were never really done and then the first time I got pregnant which was two years ago I was like oh my god I had all this anxiety about it ending my career and then I was like I should just do the special now but then I had a miscarriage and then I was like I'm depressed I don't I'm not in the mood to do a special (laughs) and then I got pregnant again and I was like okay let's do it because if I don't do it now I'm never gonna do it so it was more like it, I mean, it was a very conscious decision to do it, but it was more a personal decision because I wanted 
to believe that like a baby would not be the end of my career. And I wanted to associate it with the beginning of something big and new. Was that because you felt like other comics, especially women comics, had had their career paths altered by having kids? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there there's definitely other female comics who are moms who are awesome, but it's tough. It, I mean, even now with having my daughter, it's I'm exhausted, you know, and it's tough to motivate yourself to get up and go out and do a crappy set where you get no money. You get paid in literally like a slice of pepperoni pizza. But that stage time is so valuable and you need it to grow and to do new material. Um, but it's hard to motivate myself to get up and down. It's I, I mean, I can't go on the road for She's six months old now. I can't go on the road until probably November when she stops breastfeeding. And even then, the idea of spending three nights away from her is is pretty tough. You know, I think because it, it's really the breastfeeding that makes it difficult to uh, to get out because it's your it's your your body's still involved. I mean, I didn't really completely understand that, but it's like for nine months, your body is you're the host, right? And then after that for a year, your body's the kitchen for the baby. You know, it's her refrigerator. And stand-up just involves your body. You have to take your body out, uh, drive 30 minutes to Hollywood from Culver City and perform for 10 minutes, take your body back in the car. And, yeah, because of that, it's 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 difficult, I think, for a lot of female stand-ups who are moms. There's also for a lot of people, I, I, this is something I saw when my wife had a kid, is that beyond the logistical challenges of, you know, feeding a baby yeah. uh, when you're breastfeeding, there's also a really deep and complex set of emotional and chemical and hormonal things going on. Yeah. That, like, you think, you kind of make this plan, like, I can handle the logistics. I'll pump it this time. I'll do this. I'll freeze this. I'll do this. And then I'll have these days to go do something or whatever. Right. But the the chemical stuff really gets in the way of, of those plans because it is, it's the most important thing in the world. Yeah. Well, also the other thing is that, you know, when she was first born and she was – um, we were so – I was so focused on feeding her correctly and I was having a lot of trouble breastfeeding – and then I felt like all I was doing is focusing on feeding her. And then I would see my husband got to hold her and play with her and like lift up her arms and read her books. And then when I wasn't feeding her, I just wanted to take a shower, wipe my feet, eat a Slim Jim or something. <laughs> and it was like I had no time to really get to know her other than feeding her. And I was like all – and it's like there's a term for it called grazing where the baby – all they do is just eat with you. And they just associate you with food and that's it. And so I was like, when am I going to bond with her? You know, like actually like talk to her and stuff instead of just focusing on angling her head to get her to latch on at the right angle and keep wiping her face with all the milk and getting frustrated from the feeding. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a lot of time, you know, um, and it's great. But I think for a lot of women you know, whether they're stand-ups or not, just you take that break and you're bonding with your child and you're feeding your child 
And then it's really hard to get pulled apart and imagine spending like a whole day without your baby because you just don't know what that's like. And it's 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 scary. Like now I think about just I just think about that part in Blackfish where they separate the mama whale from the baby whale. And I like I start crying because <laughs> I'm like, that's it's uh, it, it really it's hormones, you know, that's hormone emotions. Yeah. So, but luckily, you know, we've gotten her to go down at 8 p.m., so I've still been able to go out at night and do sets. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to comedian Ali Wong. Her new special, Baby Cobra, is streaming on Netflix now. You know, your special, despite the fact that you are super pregnant, you're not doing material about being super pregnant at all. Almost. No, I mean, because you, it you was do a the... quick second joke when you walk on stage that you almost have to do something to acknowledge it. Right. But that's it. Just one line joke and then you're into your other material. Yeah, because it's the it's the first thing that I've ever put out that's my own. And I've been doing stand-up for like 11 years. So some of those jokes, like the skater joke about how, uh, you know, don't date skaters unless you want to wake up on a mattress in a kitchen. That joke is so old. I haven't a skater in like... <laughs> Nine years, you know? And so it's like, that joke is so old. And that joke about, uh, you know, some useful advice from my Asian American brothers and sisters, never go paintballing with a Vietnam veteran. That's like, I wrote that when I was like in high school and I went paintballing and my, you know, friend's dad like went to town on me for, I I don't know what reason, but I know that he served and it freaked me out. And my parents were like, that must be why. And so some of those jokes are so old. and Your parents are the voices of experience. Yes. Like, we know a little something <laughs> about being Asian Americans, sweetheart. That special is like, um, it's not just like one month of material that I built up. It's a carefully curated set of jokes from like ever since I started doing stand-up, basically. And being pregnant is a very small part of all of that. Um, I, I want to play a clip from the special. And one of the things that a lot of the material is about um, basically how you got to where you are, how you got from, uh, you know, being a whatever, a 23-year-old that just graduated college when you started doing stand-up to being an adult married mom. Um, and so this is you early on in the special talking about why you pack your husband's lunch. I don't feed him out of the goodness of my heart. I do it as an investment in my financial future. Because I don't want to work anymore. I've been reading that book by Sheryl Sandberg. She's the COO of Facebook. And she wrote that book that got women all riled up about our careers, talking about how we as women should challenge ourselves to sit at the table and rise to the top. And her book is called Lean In. Well, I don't wanna lean in, okay? I wanna lie down. Watch you lie the out. I think feminism is the worst thing that ever happened to women. Our job used to be no job. 
We had it so good. We could have done the smart thing, which would have been to continue playing dumb for the next century and be like, we're dumb women. We don't know how to do anything. So I guess we better just stay at home all day and eat snacks and watch Ellen. Um, so Allie, uh, as you're doing that joke, you are super pregnant and working. Right. Telling that joke <laughs> is you working. Yeah. And there's a lot of material around those themes, especially early in the special. Yeah. Tell me about where that material comes from and sort of what your perspective is on it. Well, I mean, so I obviously love stand-up. And I have been doing it pretty much nonstop. Besides my honeymoon and after I had a C-section, those are the two big breaks I took from stand-up. But other than that, I've been performing pretty much Every other night, uh, it's very rare for me to go like three nights in a row without performing stand-up. So I obviously love it very much. Um, but there's all sorts of other stuff I have to do besides stand-up. Like I, I, you know, I write and for a TV show and then I also sometimes do punch-up on movies. And it's like, it's exhausting. Like that stuff, I, I like it. I don't love it. And I'm exhausted. And like after... You know, like I do that and I'm tired and I see these women who seemingly seem to be just chilling, hanging out all day. The The hardest decision they have to make every day is what juice am I going to drink? What juice has the most compelling story? What <laughs> vegetables have the most interesting origin tales? And they're just sitting at, you know, like like at Whole Foods, like inspecting all these juices and reading. And I'm like, I am so jealous that this appears to me to be your life. And I'm sure it's not, you know, um, because now after being a mom and like staying home with her by myself for a very short period of time, I'm like, this is scary. I want to go back to work. <laughs> this is no picnic either, you know, but just the idea of, like, there are women, I, I believe, out there who are just chilling. And I'm like, what am I doing? I made all the wrong decisions. You're, it's like you believe, It's like you're telling me that you believe in a griffin or something like totally. that. Totally. Or like, I, ghosts are real. Yeah. There are women who are chilling. I can see it in their eyes. But it feels like when you're talking about that, I mean, what it really feels like is... What you're talking about is, you know, as badly as you might want that sometimes, you are obviously so deeply committed to your work and your career and, and you know, expressing yourself, being who you are. That's yeah. just self-evident in what you're doing on stage that it, it feels like in some ways you're, you know, what you're really talking about is the fact that that actually isn't a real thing that exists. And in fact, that, you know, especially when you are, you know, when you're in a sexist society, um, you know, which fundamentally, structurally, we're in to some extent, um, uh, there is this contradiction, which is, yes, you can have, you can follow your dreams, 
but you also still have to do all of the other stuff that the generations before you went. Like men do a little more chores now. Right. But, I, you know, you look at the studies, it's like men do – men have gone from doing 10 percent of the chores to 20 percent of the chores. And granted, that's doubling. Yeah. I'm making up these numbers, but it's something like that. Yeah. You know what it, I mean? That feels right. <laughs> that really like what you're but talking about But in terms of like this... work, women have – are expected to contribute like 50 percent. Right. I'm like deep in the trenches of that right now with that whole expectation to breastfeed and to like keep the household nice, but then also to like to work and to contribute just as much um, as the man, if not more. And so, yeah, I think it's I think it's about that. But I mean, those those feelings that I expressed are real of being jealous of this this idea of not working anymore. It's really the financial responsibility. Like there's high stakes if I don't work. I, I, I really don't like that. Yeah, that does Sincerely. stink. Yeah. It stinks. That really is a scary thing. <laughs> like it would be awesome if life. stand-up was like totally a passion and a hobby. I mean, I would be pretty happy going out and doing sets every night for pizza. <laughs> I would be pretty happy about that, you know, but you... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got to do other stuff because I, like, I can't just do that, you know? Allie, let's play a clip from your special Baby Cobra, and my guest is the comedian Ali Wong, uh, where you're talking about your mom. Your mom's a, a, a lot older. You're, you have three siblings, but the youngest of them is 10 years older than you. Yeah, I was an accident. So my mom had me when she was, like, 45. Um, and and this, is, this is you talking about trying to declutter your mom's house. The last time I was at home in San Francisco, I was trying to help her get rid of Don't ever do that with your mom. It was like the worst experience of my life. It was so emotional. We were screaming and fighting and yelling and it all came to a climax when she refused to let go of a Texas Instruments TI-82 manual. the Manuel. She don't even know where the calculator is. Those of you under 25 probably don't know what that calculator is. It was this calculator that bamboozled my generation. We were all required to buy it when we were in eighth grade. It cost like $200. And everybody thought it was like this Judy Jetson's laptop from the future. All because what? It could grab. You really left out some of the key features of the TI-82 calculator. Yeah, you could type in stuff. Yeah, you could save the <laughs> answers in it. That's number one. You could put your answers into the TI-82. I mean, not the answers necessarily, if, unless you had access to the And it to took the forever, and there was no autocorrect or anything. There you, was, to... you could play video games on it, though. You could play video games? Like terrible text-based video games. Yeah, terrible. Drug wars. You could play. You had to give it to your nerdiest friend. Yeah. Because they were the only one who knew how to get the games inside of it. But the two main things you could do was hide the formulas, like the quadratic equation. If you didn't want to memorize it, you could hide that in your graphing calculator. And then the other thing was, not that I would ever do such a thing, and children who are listening should not do that. They should do study hard and don't do drugs. But um, you could hide the answers in there, and then you could play Drug Wars and Centipede on it. But to do all of that was so laborious. You need the manual. You need the For one thing. <laughs> it would take like an hour to enter in a quadratic formula. Yeah. Cheat. It was like it was so much effort 
to cheat with that calculator. <laughs> I mean, it was like, and that fight is real. Like my mom and I, like I remember, I think, I know I was crying. I'm not sure if she was crying, but there was yelling. And we were like tug of war, like yanking that book between us. Because I was like, mom, I want you to be able to let go of this, you know, like mentally. But she, um, you know, and I think it's funny because a lot of people seem to resonate with that, especially like immigrant kids, because their parents came with nothing. And you would think that because they came with nothing, they're like, I don't need nothing. But really, they're like, I need to keep everything because I can now. And I and that whole idea of like, I never know when I might need it because they don't want to buy it again because they're cheap. Well, I mean, they're scared. They're scared. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's just like a big generational discrepancy because now I'm of the, you know, the generation where it's all about like decluttering and we have too much. And so... And there's a lot of, like, tension between me and my mom because of that. I'll finish my conversation with Ali Wong after a break. She'll explain why she chooses to talk about painful personal stuff on stage when other people might not talk about it at all. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. If you love listening to Bullseye, you're going to want to check out the new Code Switch podcast. Hosted by Gene Denby and Shireen Marisol Miraji. Code Switch is a podcast that helps us understand how race and identity crash into everything else in our lives. This week, they tackle the subject of whiteness. What does it mean? And why is it important that we figure out how to talk about it? Find Code Switch on the NPR One app at npr.org slash podcasts. Hey guys, this is Adam Conover. You may know me from my true TV show, Adam Ruins Everything. Well, guess what? Now we're doing a podcast version right here on Maximum Fun. What we do is we take all the interesting, fascinating experts that we talk to for just a couple minutes on the show, and we sit with them for an entire podcast, really going deep and getting into the fascinating details of their work. Find Adam Ruins Everything wherever you get your podcasts or at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ali Wong. She taped her incredibly funny new comedy special, Baby Cobra, while she was seven and a half months pregnant. It's streaming now on Netflix. The other thing that your special is about, I think, is having this idea in your head that you have to trick someone into liking you and maybe supporting you and then falling in love actually. Mm-hmm. And like realizing that as as much as you might plan to these tricks, right? These ideas, these schemes. As much as you might come up with schemes while you're sitting around the house, maybe actually you love your husband and he loves you, and the other parts maybe also don't even aren't even going to work out. Right? Yeah. I mean, that is basically what happened. <laughs> and I mean, even with. Mm, my husband, I was, like, totally initially attracted to all of this superficial stuff. Like, he was, you know, the first things I learned about him was that he graduated from Harvard and he was really good looking. And then, like, the reality is when we first went out on our first date, he, like, didn't even pay. He actually <laughs> borrowed money from me. And I was like, what? What is up with this dude? And he was. A, Did he borrow money from you above and beyond the bill? Like, was he like, could you pay for the pizza and can you hit me with 20 bucks? No. Let me, let me hold 20 bucks real quick. <laughs> he was just like, he was like, I, it was cash only. And he was like, oh, I don't have cash. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. And he chose the place too. And it was a horrible place. It was your own fault for dating a guy that handsome. 
Yes, totally. And then it was like he was a vegan. And at the time I was like a super carnivore. But then I just kept on going out with him. It's true. Like I really did just, you know, all that other stuff that I cared about fell to the wayside. And yeah, I I fell in love with the guy and he's great. I want to ask you um, about something that you talk about in the special that you don't hear a lot of people talk about, much less um, do jokes about, which is that you had a miscarriage. Yeah. How did you decide whether or not to talk about that publicly and whether or not to talk about that on stage? Well, I think I wouldn't have talked about it publicly if I hadn't have told so many people that I was pregnant right when I got pregnant. I was so excited that I was pregnant and I couldn't have imagined anything going wrong. But I told everybody, like as soon as it got positive, I told everybody. And then when I had the miscarriage, I had to tell everybody the bad news, which actually turned out to be a good thing because, you know, when I when I told everybody the bad news, all these women came to me and told me they confessed that they too had had a miscarriage. And I didn't know how common it was. The fact that so many other women have had a miscarriage and told me it did make me feel a lot better because I felt less alone and I felt like I wasn't this infertile freak for, and it wasn't my fault for having one. Um, Because having a miscarriage, it, it is so dark and it is so personal because it happens in your body. And, um, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of humor in it. I mean, after that I found and that I ended up, you know, sharing on stage that other people could seem to find funny too. So I thought, you know, why not put it in there? It it was the one joke that didn't always, 100% of the time when I traveled with it, work super duper well. But I did I did feel really passionate about including it because, um, because I thought it was funny and also because I thought it was important for other women to know that I had one and that getting pregnant is not always this like easy journey, especially when you're in your mid thirties and that if they're having like a rocky time too, that they're not alone. I went to, uh, uh, my wife and I went to the doctor. Uh, We have two kids and uh, have had two miscarriages and the most recent one, you know, we went to the doctor and she, you know, confirmed that it was a miscarriage and everything. And um, she's super nice. It was not our regular doctor, which was a bummer, but uh, she was super nice. And, um, you know, one of the things she said to us was, look, you've had four pregnancies and two kids, and that is a hundred percent in the normal range and absolutely nothing to be worried about. Right. Like to have, you know, I can't remember what exactly the number was, 20 to 40 percent or something like that. Yeah. Um, of uh, of pregnancies are, are miscarried. And it's just part of the way that your body makes sure that the pregnancy is working. But at the same time, you're still both going through, especially for the mother, you're going through a, a real, uh, a difficult physical process. And... Um, you know, and I think both parents are dealing with the fact that you are, you know, you have a lot of emotional investment in 
in making a baby. Right. And the, to have it change direction so sharply yeah. is just really hard to adjust to. Yeah. And just also, I mean, I was told by that by my OB too, that it was very common. And it's one thing to be told that it's very common and to be told the statistic. It's another thing to put like a face that you know to the category that you are now a part of. Um, and for like, even now you telling me, like, I, I feel like a bond and I feel also like so much compassion. And I also feel still like less alone just by you telling me now that you guys have had two, but that also you have two kids and it gives me like, it makes me feel better and it gives me hope too. And I mean, even now with like every, like every time I want to have more kids, I have one now and I want to have like at least two more. It's what's the ceiling on this ten? Yeah, <laughs> the ceiling is maybe maybe like five. They're, you know, they're cheaper by the dozen, as I understand it. Well, I, I would I would love to have like a dozen. Steve Martin. Talks yeah, <laughs> but like with every pregnancy, um, now I'm there's gonna be that worry that like is this gonna take you know? And there's still also gonna be that. Envy, which I think is natural, of other women who have never had a miscarriage, who have it so seemingly easy, um, and that that's all normal, you know, um, and that it's okay to feel envy, that it's okay to feel scared and to not feel, like, attached when you find out that you're pregnant. I mean, all those things. And I wish women would talk about it more so that it would it would even though it is normal that it would that would it would feel more normal i found comfort the second time around in uh in the idea that it's the you know it's the body protecting itself and protecting you and protecting the pregnancy that it is saying mm, this one's not going to work i better take care of this and we'll try again right i mean there's it's i i take so much comfort in that too but then you get people saying to you did your doctor tell you maybe why you had the miscarriage or is there anything you could have done so that it would have stayed? And I went to an acupuncturist shortly after and I told them that I had a miscarriage and it was a, I went to the Santa Monica school of acupuncture, which was my mistake. And it was like, that's when, you know, they have like, you know, what you really want when you go to get acupuncture is like a caricature of a Chinese man giving you <laughs> acupuncture. But really I got this like, you know, I think she was white and she was like 21 years old and was just trying to figure out, should I do Peace Corps or should I do acupuncture and decided to go with acupuncture and told me that she had all these like hippie philosophies about how I should go out and close my eyes and spend time in the sun so that next time when I get pregnant, the baby will want to stay. And I was like, are you kidding me, dude? Like the worst bedside manner in the world. But in that she was like placing blame on me. And I think some people, when they ask you what was the cause of the miscarriage in that question, they don't know it, but that they are sort of placing some blame on the woman. Um, and, and it's, it's really intense. So, you know, like I said, just knowing that so many other women have it help that I know have had it help me, understand that it, it was not my fault. There's this expectation that somebody, that, that the reply to that question is going to be like, 
Well, I can't I can't put my finger on it. I was driving cross country on my hog. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> And I, and I was getting in all these bar fights. Right. Totally. Like, well, it's, oh, it, I think it was this piece of sushi that I ate um, on December 5th. I think it was because I sniffed whiskey. I think it's because, you know, I went running. It's like, no, none of it is your fault, you know? Allie, I so appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. Um, it was so fun to get to talk to you. Oh, so fun to talk to you, too. And it's always great to see you. Ali Wong's hilarious, like so, so funny new special is called Baby Cobra. You can watch it on Netflix right now. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. When Kanye West broke a a thousand years ago, he was a very different kind of public figure. He made his name rejecting hood cliches, without defining himself in opposition to them. He was indebted to the underground hip-hop movement of the late 90s, but he was never interested in being underground himself. He was basically a pretty regular guy with some cheeky jokes who loved girls and polo and Jesus. The last five or eight years, Yeezy's been leaning into his superstar status, you might have noticed. He's been making great music, but he's far from a regular guy. Some of his most successful acolytes, like Drake, have focused on melody and ennui, both pieces of the Kanye puzzle, but they've left aside the warmth and relatability of early Kanye. Enter Chance the Rapper. He's 23, from Chicago, just like Ye. On his new record, Coloring Book, he describes himself pretty plainly. Kanye's best prodigy, he ain't signed me, but he proud of me. He's the heir to the warm, soulful part of Kanye's legacy, and of Outkast's Andre Benjamin, too. Chance's music isn't just aesthetically warm. He has a sweet voice, and his rapping is full of beautiful melodies, but it's also full of lyrical warmth, glancing personal observations and memories. Take the song Summer Friends, which opens with the beautiful couplet, Socks on Concrete, Jolly Rancher Kids. I was talking back, and now I gotta stay at Grandma's crib. Socks on concrete, jolly rancher kids. I was talking back and now I gotta stay at grandma's crib. Bunch of tank top, nappy headed bikes, still in chatham boys. None of my nigga, I ain't had no dad. None of my nigga, I ain't had no choice. JJ, Mikey, Lil Derek, and now 79th Street was America then. Ice cream truck and the beauty supply. Blockbuster movies and animals again. We were still catching lightning bugs when the plague hit the backyard. Had to come in that dark. Songs like that one are tinged with the sadness that comes with the street violence that's taken so many lives in Chicago. But it's also a beautiful and very gracefully put memory of childhood. Chance's past work leaned heavily on that quick turnaround nostalgia. Coloring Book is more about coming of age. He introduces the record with a verse focused on his relationship with his child's mother, he might be the first MC to rhyme about hoping to get married. Hey, this ain't no intro, this the entree. Hit that intro with Kanye, I sound like Andre. Trying to turn my baby mama to my fiance. She like, like, like music, she from Houston, like Auntie Yonsei. Man, my daughter couldn't have a better mother. If she ever find another, you better love her. Man, I swear my life is perfect. I can merge it. If I die, I'll probably cry in my own service. I, I...
Maybe the most remarkable thing about Coloring Book is how effortlessly it combines hip-hop and God. Tension between the sacred and profane is, of course, at the heart of American pop music, but in rap, usually things end up going one way or another. Chance is as comfortable threatening to send thugs to his label's office if they cross him as he is making praise music, like on the song Blessings. Praise him, praise him till I'm gone. When the places go up, the blessings come down. When the praises go up, the blessings come down. It seems like blessings keep falling in my lap. It seems like blessings. Have you ever seen the video for H to the Izzo? It was one of Kanye's big breakthroughs, a monster hit for Jay Z that West produced. He built it from chunks of this great Jackson 5 record. It was kind of a a We Made It song, a coming out party for hip-hop. I remember dancing in my dorm room when that video came on my little 12-inch tube TV. If you make it halfway through Coloring Book to the unapologetically joyful song Angels, and you don't have that dancing in the dorm room feeling, if you don't feel connected to Chance's kind heart, and I don't know. You're not invited to my next house party, I guess. That's my option. City so damn great, I feel like Alexander. Wear your halo like a hat, that's like the latest fashion. I got angels all around me, they keep me surrounded. Come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Producers this week, Abadian X. Porello, Christian Duenas, and Jennifer Marmer. Senior producer at Maximum Fun is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music at the top of the show. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows and extended versions of our interviews, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or grab them in your favorite podcast thing. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted this week by digital strategist extraordinaire Winter Mitchell, who leads the team in a discussion of women in the workplace as portrayed in pop culture. And somehow they don't talk about Roseanne. I don't know how they pulled that off. Anyway, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 